Welcome to the Innate Flow Podcast, a vibration in the time-space continuum, communicating the wisdom, reflection, and awareness direct from the mouths of authentic truth seekers and spiritual warriors. These conversations are empowered dispatches, co-created to uncover how we as individuals can move into healing our collective consciousness in a holistic and intuitive way. Sit back, quiet the mind, and open the heart as we integrate the here and now. Mike Bledsoe is someone who I have been following for the past eight years and who I have witnessed go through a lot of transformation as I have gone through my own. Mike is the founder and CEO of The Strong Coach, a company that supports coaches in maximizing their impact through refining their business structures, as well as doing the deep work of getting clear on their identity and healing aspects of themselves that are standing in their way. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To jump right in, I want you to imagine that you are at Burning Man, and on a microdose of psilocybin, you've just stepped out of an ecstatic dance circle to take a breather, and this big techno Viking comes up to you and asks you, who are you and why are you here? Oh man, I am here to raise the consciousness of the planet. Raise the consciousness of the planet. I'd probably throw in something through, you know, through fun and play. Okay. And what, yeah. what does that look like in, in practicality, using the gifts that Mike Bledsoe has in this incarnation to, to do that? Yeah, I think about the, uh, the old cliche Gandhi quote of be the change you want to see in the world. And the older I get, the more brilliant that quote uh, is and lands much more heavily. And um, <sighs> My girlfriend for my birthday uh, this past year, I turned 40 and she uh, gifted me a staff. And on the staff, it reads, lead by example. And that's a reminder for me because I know that people do not necessarily learn by what they hear, but by what they see. And if I want to be a teacher, if I want to help elevate people, then I have to be the example of that myself. Yeah. And within that, for many people, I imagine there is a lot of unlearning that has to happen as we work to overcome a lot of the conditioning that we've experienced through you know our early childhood our conditioning from our parents from our schooling system you and i have something in common in that we had a non-traditional education i was homeschooled for first grade and went to a waldorf school through 12th grade you were also homeschooled in in reflecting on embodying this change this healing the you know the wisdom that you have assimilated in your 40 years on this earth, how, how has the education that you experienced, especially early on, influenced that? Uh, you know, what's interesting is it's not about what I did. I think it has more to do with what I didn't do. 
And when I hang out with my friends that are entrepreneurs, which most of my friends are, um, I, I realize that I have an unfair advantage in a lot of ways. And I've actually had some of my friends point that out. And they say, once they find out that I was homeschooled, they're like, they're like, oh, that's so unfair. And for someone who's working the nine to five and is really focused on, uh, you know, a mainstream lifestyle, being homeschooled would be a drawback. It would be something that would be harmful to being mainstream. But uh, being homeschooled, the benefit of that is that I had less to unlearn than a lot of other people. And uh, I, when I work with my clients, one of the things that I've recognized is that the majority of the work that we must do is to unlearn certain things. And in that unlearning process, a lot of uh, people's own wisdom is discovered. And you, you've likely heard, and I'm sure people listening to this, you know, they've heard people say, you know, that the answers are within you, right? And what stands between you and the answers that are inside of you are these thoughts that were created. Uh, and, th and thoughts not necessarily created, but thoughts that were inherited. You know, no, if, if, have you ever read the four agreements? No, I haven't. Okay. So there's this great part in the four agreements that, you know, talks about uh, that, you know, we're living inside of a dream and the, there's a collective dream and we're dreaming when we're asleep and we're dreaming when we're awake. And, you know, uh, we, we dream of the family and we dream of society and we dream of the planet. And it's the, I, this idea of that we're, uh, that we're part of something and how it's structured is, is uh, a dream. And, uh, that dream, he, he talks about how, when you're born, that dream starts being imprinted on you by your parents and which was imprinted on them by their parents and their parents. And then you're imprinted on by your teachers and, and the television. And I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, uh, man, I, I am so careful about what information I expose myself to and I'm 40 years old and I'm an aware person. Like I'm, I'm on the lookout and I look back and I really am so thankful that my parents uh, didn't allow us to watch television during the week, uh, during the school year, we could only watch it on the weekends. And during the summer we were allowed to pick one TV show to watch a day, 30 minutes and so we were really selective about what we were going to watch. It had to be very entertaining for us. And I, um, you know, we've got to be careful because those beliefs, those, those thoughts that become beliefs, you know, uh, these, these core beliefs that we have are just thoughts that we uh, assume to be true. And most of the thoughts that we assume to be true, that decision was made as a child. And so if someone has a lot of beliefs that they have, they formed from their early childhood, which is the majority of the beliefs that people have, then <clears throat> uh, you're going to behave like a child. And so when we look out at society, 
as a whole right now, uh, I view them as a bunch of children. And you can, you can tell when someone's being a child because of how they respond to things. I, I can see the four-year-old. There's this concept called age regression. And when, <clears throat> when someone reacts in a certain way and I get to know somebody and I see them react the same way over and over and over again, I see their four-year-old. I was like, oh, that's, that's, they learned that from their dad that you know, you're supposed to respond like this in this situation. And that person, if you talk to them about it, will say, well, that's just how I am. And there's uh, very little conversation to be had about it. Uh, so I have no idea what you asked to get me down that track. <laughs> no, that, was perfect. that was perfect. And it's like a not Perry uh, founder training camp for the soul says it's not who you are. It's what you learned. And that helps you to detach from mm. identifying as these neuroses that you have to begin you know, separating yourself from them so that you can then begin healing them. You can then begin shining light on these shadow aspects of ourselves that we were conditioned to believe. Ultimately, the power structure, the, the powers that be are, are benefited by us identifying as these contractive energies because we're more easily controlled in a space of fear, in a space of limitation and you know thinking of ourselves as this you know smaller self in in experiencing what we experienced over the past two years with this you know collective formation psychosis this fear virus that has been you know embedded disseminated into the collective consciousness what was your processing of that as a person who values sovereignty over your thoughts, over your emotions, over your actions. And yeah, what, what was that, you know, stepping into March of 2020 and experiencing what the world experienced and parsing the information that was being given? Yeah. You know, leading up to March of 20, was it 2020? Yeah. March of 2020, I was living a life of uh, an incredible amount of independence and freedom. And um, I was actually, I had a ticket to fly to Colombia. I think it was March 18, the day that they closed the borders to Colombia. And I was watching, I wasn't, I, I had seen, you know, some news here and there. I'm, I, I'm on Twitter a bit, so I, I, I get exposed to some things. And I, I recognized that there was a, there was a virus and, you know, people were freaking out and it seemed to be moving from the east to the west. And um, the I go, man, uh, every day that went by in March, I go, this is looking like people are responding more and more strongly to this. We saw the videos of people uh, being welded shut in their their uh, buildings in China and people falling down dead in the streets, which now it seems really fucking comical because we know that that's not how it works. Um, and that that's a, the first, it's easy to look back now and go, Oh, that was clearly propaganda. They never show those videos now because if they were to show it now, people would recognize the propaganda. So there, those videos, you know, they're buried somewhere but if you can go back to your memory and you go oh yeah that did happen uh those videos were proliferated as true and so 
I, I remember watching it and I go, wow, maybe this is a really devastating thing. Maybe this is like the black plague. This is this, holy shit, I'm experiencing something in my life that I never considered as a, as a possibility. And I'm sitting in San Diego going, oh, well, and the thing is, is I was watching this lead up to this and I actually bumped my ticket to leave a whole week early because I thought, well, I'm in California and, uh, and I've been living in California for about five years and I don't believe the Californians are going to deal well with this type of stress. And I, that my, my thought was a, the average California, you know, the way California responds, I'm going to generalize a whole group of people there. It, it, it's a softer culture. Um, they're more prone to uh, fear in a lot of ways uh, because the, they're not exposed to arduous things very often. So it's not a, it's not like a, uh, a critique of them. It's just that that's, that's what happens when your environment is really easy all the time. <laughs> it's the weather's always nice. Uh, it's everything's very predictable. So when something highly unpredictable arrives, it's difficult for that population to deal with it. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm very security minded, uh, having been in the military and competing in martial arts and things like that. I, I tend to read the room around security uh, a lot better than most people. And I'm looking around, I go, well, this is not a safe place to be. If the virus is really deadly, it's not a good place to be. And if the virus is nothing, it's still not, not a good place to be. And I predicted that there would be riots in the next couple months. I, I told people, I said, there's going to be riots. I don't know why. I don't know if it's going to be because of food shortages or whatever it is. I can't tell you why, but I suspect there's going to be riots. And people will go, wow, you're crazy. And I go, yeah, whatever. And by the way, I'm going to Utah. Uh, and I found a nice little spot at the, the foot of Mount of Zion National Park. And I got an Airbnb for two months. You know, initially it was for two weeks. And then I recognized that this thing wasn't going to end. So uh, I go, all right, let's, let's extend our rental a couple months. And I, um, I mean, I left from the moment that they they shut down the border of Columbia to the moment I was in Utah was about 12 hours. I am because I go, wow, if they're shutting down countries. What would stop them from shutting down states if this is really as bad as they say it is? So I jump in my truck. I, I grab two people to my friends and we drive to Utah overnight. And we didn't need to do that. Uh, looking back, obviously, we didn't. We can the travel between states never was restricted, but I didn't know. And I, I didn't even have a place to stay in San Diego, so it didn't matter. And so we do that. And I'm in Utah game planning everything. I'm like, all right, we're going to sanitize everything. We're going to, we're going to limit our, we're going to go to the local country store to get our food. It's got healthy stuff. Uh, I started fasting 30 hours every weekend. And I followed that up with a combo. Uh, treatment. So I did that for four weeks. And I go, because I, what I started doing immediately, uh, speaking of sovereignty, you know, I look at physical sovereignty is, is where you're capable. If you're capable, then 
the more capability you have, the more responsibility, the, your ability to respond to a situation you have, which any, anytime you increase your responsibility, your ability to respond, you increase your freedom. And I value freedom so much that I said, all right, <clears throat> I'm not the healthiest I've ever been. I've always been pretty healthy, but I've been traveling a lot. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get grounded and I'm going to get healthy. I'm going I'm to pull out all the stops. I ordered my mushroom supplements. I was doing the combo on the weekends. And I ate very clean. We were getting outdoors. You know, I was out on the trails in my shorts, getting sun every day. And then I was spending all day, every day during the, you know, we would kick, we would knock off around four or 5 PM. Uh, ben, Joy Walker and I would knock off around four or 5 PM and go do our, our daily trail run uh, and some beautiful uh, landscapes. And we did a lot of good stuff for our psychology. We did a lot of good things for our physical health, but I spent all day uh, interacting with previous clients and current clients to see how I could help them. So I immediately jumped into service. And one of the reasons I did that is a, what else are you going to do? And then B, anytime there's a hardship, anytime people see threat, there is massive opportunity. And I want to make sure that our coaches who are health coaches were positioned to help the most amount of people in this, in this, place of threat. So create more opportunity, flip any threat that our coaches are witnessing or, or feeling and try to help them position their thinking to, to see the opportunity. And then also I was working on myself to be able to see the opportunity in this because I was afraid as well. I, I looked at this and I go, this is, this is kind of crazy. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, one of my biggest fears was that I was going to get older and I was going to get bored. And uh, that has not happened one bit. And I reminded myself of that when this was happening. I said, you know what? You're not doing the house and white picket fence and all that. And uh, this is exciting. I just kept reminding myself, this is, this is really exciting that I get to be alive during this really tumultuous time where we have no idea what's going to happen next. And so... Every day, uh, me and one of my friends, I have, a, I have a buddy who's, he's brilliant. He's just a brilliant by the numbers kind of guy. Like he, he runs, uh, uh, his company does over a hundred million a year. He's just really good at everything by the numbers. And he and I, he actually ended up coming out to Utah a couple of weeks later and doing the same thing as me. And uh, he, he, I went to Utah on intuition. He went by statistical analysis. He goes, okay, there's a major hospital nearby, but you're also not close to everything else. There's no other, you can't, there's no earthquakes. There's no tornadoes. There's no whatever. Like he, his risk assessment was statistical and found that that was the best spot. My intuition told me it was the best spot. And every day we would get on the phone and we would, we would grok the numbers and when I say grok, I mean, really understand what's happening globally, like understand what's happening. And every day we would meet and I was following these different YouTube accounts, people who were, uh, you know, giving their interpretation of the data. And we were, I was going to where the raw data was being published. And, and uh, what's funny is uh, I don't think many people did that, unfortunately. Uh, and what I, what I recognized was I remember I, it was three weeks in. So it was, it was around the 1st of April. 
<laughs> probably April Fool's Day. I remember waking up and the first thought in my head was, huh, it's all bullshit. <laughs> and I messaged my buddy, Jesse Elder. I go, what's up, dude? And like, let's get on the phone because I haven't talked to him in a while. And we get, I get on the phone. He goes, dude, it's all bullshit. I was like, when did you figure it out? He's like, yesterday. I was like, dude, I just figured it out right now. It was like, we both came to the same conclusion at the same time. And then I ended up talking to my buddy uh, who I'd been uh, cracking the numbers with. And yeah, he goes, he goes, yeah, this isn't what they're saying it is. Because they were using language like it's exponential. And so like, look at the graph, it's exponential. And, and I did the math about uh, two weeks in, I go, okay, we're, we're in an exponentially uh, growing virus situation here. And I'm going to extrapolate uh, a, an exponential uh, situation. It's like, oh, by, I forget the exact dates. By this date, the entire world should be infected yeah, because it's an exponential. And by the third week, I realized that it was nowhere close to being exponential. <laughs> and, and it really reminded me of the days when I was in the Navy and I, I, I had um, special clearance to see a lot of special information. I'll just say that. And I would see very concrete data come through. And then I would watch the news agencies report on it 12 hours later. And it was disgusting. It was fucking disgusting. And I was so disgusted that I never watched news again. I went on, uh, I, I totally put it out of my, my field. I even got rid of my TV back in 20, like years later, 2013, because I realized that it, it proliferated well beyond just the news. Here I am and I'm, you know, we're in the internet age and Twitter and YouTube and everyone's freaking out. And I just go, oh, it's bullshit. And then the two people who were staying with me, it took me a little bit longer for them to loosen up around it because I, I, I went into high security mode. So I, and then I had created a situation where people were listening to my, my security mind and I go, no, we, we can lower our defenses. So it took a few more weeks to get every, everybody to chill out. And so, um, you know, and, and at that point, I, I was able to have more fun with it. I was able to enjoy myself. And that was only three weeks in. I, I felt really good about it. And I still recognize that for our clients and our previous clients that, you know, now it took me a few weeks to unwind that with the people who were in the same household as me, who were getting exposed to a lot of the same information as me. And in fact, most of their information probably came through me. And then, uh, and then now I go, okay, well now we got to deal with this in our community. Cause for me, you know, I, I, I got to worry about myself first, then my, you know, then it's me and my girlfriend, then it's my immediate like friend circle and family, and then it, it expands out. And so, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting two years. I'd say it took about a year before everyone got to pull their head out of the, the gutter a bit and, and be able to, to breathe well and start thinking about things critically. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how that went for me. I, I, I stayed in Utah for two months. And then after two months, I said, you know, I bet, you know, this might be a good time to buy a house or something. So I was like, I always wanted a place in Tahoe. Let's go up there. So I, I took off and started 
traveling again and I didn't buy a house in Tahoe. Um, all of Silicon Valley beat me to it. And, uh, but, you know, which means I'm, I'm fucking stoked that I didn't end up there because I didn't want to live in Silicon Valley number two. Um, although I am in Austin now, so different, a little different situation. That was, I, I would say that, that, that really, that's the first few months. And then of course we had the George Floyd, uh, situation go down and then, uh, watching that compound on top of the fear around COVID and the riots happening. And then I go, Oh, okay. I was right about the riots. I had no idea that'd be race-based, but, uh, okay. And when, when that kicked off, I had actually rented a, a, a cabin for 10 days. I had 10 days of solitude in Tahoe. So I'd gotten a cabin away from everybody else far away. And I was going to like be with myself and I was going to have a nice little retreat to just be with me. And then this whole thing, like basically the whole, my entire 10 days was me dealing with uh, people, uh, talking to people, trying to understand what was going on. And it made me really sad. And I, I remember it was like day two or three, I was sitting there going, man, I, and I was going to do work, but the thing is, is you couldn't do any work during that time because the majority of my work is marketing. And if you tried to sell anything in like that, that month long period, you would get attacked, just totally obliterated online. Like no one wanted to hear it. Um, so especially I, around health and wellness where yeah. you're promoting yeah you're promoting healthy lifestyle habits rather than social distancing and mask wearing yeah and health and wellness from a white guy on top of that and so there was um i i sat there and i said this is a very disappointing situation overall it's um it's sad what happened it's and it's also sad at the response there were there were certain things about the response i did like um i think people started questioning you know, the authority in certain ways, but I even made a post is like, I hope, my fear is this won't go far enough. And I don't think anyone really interpreted that the way that I meant it, because the way I meant it was that people have given government as a whole, this really, it sees government as a parental figure and gives it a lot of power. Um, and it should not have that. And so I was viewing it through the lens of, of abuse of power in mass and what ended up happening. And I'm not surprised by it because people are looking for a mommy and a daddy is that they, um, you know, they didn't want to diminish the power outside of themselves. They wanted to change who had power over them. <laughs> and that was also disappointing. So there was a few days where I, I had hope. <laughs> and then there, and then I realized that no, the, this is just a different, different version of the same exact thing. And, uh, and so I spent that 10 days. And I remember a few days into it, I said, okay, I could either go back to the way I was behaving and thinking before, which is uh, I'm not going to worry about what's happening with the rest of the world. I'm only going to impact the people who are attracted to me because that's how I was. I was, I was going, you know what, if people don't vibe with my vibe and they're not 
coming into my field naturally and with ease, then I'm not going to touch it. And, and whatever. And and it's not about not caring. It's just, I was, I decided that that was the level of impact that I was truly capable of. And to to a degree that that's kind of true. And I said, well, if I want to take on more responsibility here, if I want to increase my ability to respond to what's happening in the world, then I need to grok this. I need to surround this whole situation from every angle, every argument. I want to hear everybody's side. I, I, and, and, I, and I had the conversation I had with myself that day was, you know, Mike, that's going to be hard. It's going to be very, very hard. This is not something that you're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to grok this. And then two weeks later, have a conclusion. This is going to take years. And I was right. I, 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 I said, you know what? Well, what else am I going to do? So I started working to grok it and doing interviews and, and talking to different people. If you go listen to the Bledsoe show um, around that time, you'll, you would get a beat on the different personalities I was bringing in and the types of conversations I was having. I listened to your podcast all through 2020 and in, in listening to it, got the sense of the amount of effort you were putting in, in really doing that deep research that can be uncomfortable for people to do because it requires a lot of responsibility. In hearing your reflections on what the pandemic really brought about at a deep level was the the uncertainty that was already present within society, within the our structure, was brought to bear and was really made front and center a part of our awareness. And we can either run for mommy and daddy in our government with within that like more immature sense of ourselves, or step into that level of sovereignty of, oh, this, this is increasing my capacity to really step into what is my potential as a leader within this situation and step into that capacity. And what you're describing, I also hear as reflective of what Paul Check refers to as like the I, we all, where you know first went into yourself of the like, all right, how, what do I need to do to make sure that I am resourced, that I am healthy, that I'm you know safe, and then the the we. Now that I'm safe, how do I step into seeing how my immediate sphere? can be best supported by me. And then the all of like, all right, now that I've gotten my community resourced and stabilized, how do I then disseminate the the more broader message of taking supporting coaches in maximizing their impact? What in within that was the the turning point that you felt like from the we to the all? I was having some conversations with a friend of mine and um, we got into the conversation around morality. Morality was a subject where I had been behaving in a way that it was very individualized. Uh, I was treating morality as if it were ethics. You know, ethics are created by, by humans. Uh, their ideas, their rules, there's boards of, board of ethics all this, but morals are universal. 
And I was not living in a way that I had believed in universal morality. It was all about, you know, your perception is your reality. And living from that perspective can be very empowering in some ways, but it's also limiting in other ways. And uh, one of the conclusions I came to was that perception is perception and reality is reality. And our work is to align our perception to reality. And anyone who has not done that, that is, that is the, to me, the definition of darkness. You, if you want to be in the darkness, then you're going to live in a fantasy. You're living, you're not in contact with reality. And um, I think it was, uh, was Plato that talked about this. It's, it's uh, the way, one of the ways that things that make us human is to be able to use our rationale. And uh, we use that rationale to become in greater contact with reality. And <clears throat> by doing so, you start seeing what's created by ideas and what, what is concrete, concretely true. And so through, I, I stayed with my friend for four days and we had these conversations for four days. And then I, um, I went and I started doing a lot of research on morality and I started what I was able to really get down to is what is the practical, what is practically right and what is practically wrong. And what I got down to is that every human being on this planet is sovereign. Every human being on this planet is equal to one another. Uh, nobody is more important than another. And, and, what that, what that really, the way that showed up for me was that I, I was then able to see the field uh, much more clearly. And I, I started to see how people who are coercing or which is, uh, which is telling people that they have to behave a certain way or do a certain thing or else, or else I, it, it's, coercing happens under the threat of violence or, you know, uh, bondage, putting them in jail or something like that. So, uh, it, it, it's, it's a demand that is backed up by, uh, with a threat of force. And so there's coercion and then there's violence, someone who initiates violence against somebody else. Those two things are wrong. Those two things are immoral. Uh, what we have a right to, we have a right to our labor. We have a right to our life. This human body is our property comes down to property rights. I have a right to my body. I have a right to my abode. I have the right to my home to be left alone. I'm in my home doing what I'm doing, not harming anybody else. I am left to that. Um, my labor is my life. So what are, what is, what are my rights? Uh, another way of saying that is what is right. There's a reason that rights are, 
are called rights because a, a true right is right. And anything that is an infringement on your rights, on what is right, is wrong. And so I started, I started really researching this idea of, of universal morality that I hadn't really looked into much before. And I quickly was able to identify what is right, who is being right, who is behaving rightly, and who is be behaving wrongly. And I started to see the darkness that is prevalent on our planet in a way that I was not able to see before. And I went into, uh, I went into depression. I was really, really sad. Um, and I actually had started dating the woman who I'm uh, uh, still dating. Uh, we started dating a little less than two years ago. And being with her was just a very, it was very good for me. Because if I had been by myself through this lack of hope for humanity, I was looking out at the landscape and I was like, man, it is so dark out there. I am really depressed. But I had this beacon of light, which was uh, my girlfriend, Ashley. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, she she teaches meditation. She's a psychotherapist. She's, um, she studied Buddhism. She's, she studied a lot of the same things I had studied. And, um, even though I was, I had never considered myself Buddhist, it was having her perspectives. And I don't think she would claim to be a Buddhist anymore either after, you know, we'd been dating for a while. Um, and the, yeah, just witnessing the darkness was very depressing. And I, had to, I, I kept reminding myself of, you know, Mike, you wanted to grok this. You wanted to grok this. You chose this. You wanted to be more responsible. And so I had to keep looking at it. And what I saw was that the only reason that there there are a lot of people who are in power who are abusing that power and are doing things that are wrong. They are using violence and coercion in order to uh, get people to behave a certain way. And people respond very well to coercion because anytime fear is in induced, something happens interesting that's in psychology is that when fear becomes present for a person and, and if they in any way don't believe they can understand their way through the situation, they immediately unconsciously start looking for the authority. And so it started making sense of, oh, and, and authority can never be taken. It, it can only be given. So somebody cannot assume authority. They can assume violence. They can assume coercion. They can make threats, but they can't be the authority in your life unless you give it to them. You have to make them the authority. And I looked and I saw that everybody had given authority to other human beings. And when I say everybody, I, don't, I, I mean 99.9% .9 of the population, maybe more. 
And I look at that and it made me sad. And I saw that if I'm going to make a difference in this world, my job is to help people to see the true authority, to see the authority within themselves as the author of their own life. You know, we break down the word authority, author, which is to write. Are you the, are you the one who is authoring your own life or are you the subject of someone else's authoring? And I wanted people to be able to see that. So to me, there's, there's two authorities. There's you who are authoring your own life. And then there's God and God is all that is. And, uh, is it, these are the laws of nature, the, the cause and effect as above, so below the things that are, we, uh, the hermetic principles fall into this. And if you, if you study the hermetic principles and you know them well, then everything, everything in the world, you can see how things operate principally uh, in, in a really beautiful way. And so I, I see the hermetic principles, I see the universe, all that is as God. And that is, that is the uh, grand authority. And then we have the authority within ourselves. And it's that relationship of these two authorities that are, that are of interest to me. It's a, I tell people that um, I'm dancing with God. I have what I intend to do. And then God then says, well, let's, I'm going to make this move. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I got to pivot here too. And so it's, I'm not, I'm not here to willpower my way through life and make things revolve around me. It's a dance. And, and by the way, God is really fucking big. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's a big dancing partner. And so and you're wounded by, by it. So the, um, so my, one of my missions in this life is to help people to see the authority in themselves because it requires to see that first, which um, I think training camp for the soul and not Perry are very well equipped to help people get to become the author of their own life, to, to witness the, their own personal sovereignty. And um, I don't know of a program that helps people see uh, to, to really witness things in the way that I was just discussing uh, as, as the grand authority. Um, maybe I'll build something at some point. Uh, because there, you can be stair-stepped through that conversation intellectually. It can be done. I, I hope that some of what I say today will be the building blocks of that conversation because it's not a short one. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of consideration. It takes a lot of unlearning in order to get there. Something that, that Paul Check talks about again is the government is a reflection of its people. Yeah. And within that is the, the as above, so below, as below, so above principle. And as we go through this process of healing ourselves and of really taking ownership over what we have control of in our immediate sphere, tuning out of the, the collective fear, the collective, you know, 
chaos and tuning into what we have control over, we're really stepping into that connection with the divine, that connection with our soul that is then connected with God, with source consciousness, with this universal love that, you know, is a massive dancing partner and can be overwhelming to dance with and co-create with. And that is the invitation. And what, what you're describing in, in this theoretical program of first, like getting clear on your own individual sovereignty and then using that to step into the, um, the collective and impact it in a particular way, I have found that the, the trifecta of the strong coach of Enlifted and of TCS really bridge that gap very elegantly in, you know, first creating the, the language, the identity, the reality of, you know, our words in their reflection of, of who we are and how they create our reality that, you know, then we use within the training camp for the soul to begin going deep into our um, ancestral wounds, our childhood wounds to then heal those that, you know, in the context of coaching, stepping into the strong coach to amplify that has been profoundly um, beneficial for me in seeing how these three but over overlap and create this coherent system. Anytime anyone says that, I get chills and I love it because um, you're not the first person to, to notice that. And I actually noticed it myself in uh, 2019 and um, 2019, 2020, somewhere in there, probably 2019. And uh, because I created all three or I was part of the creation of all three in the year 2018. So I had gone through a lot of healing myself and I had, I went on sabbatical. I wasn't supposed to work the entire year of 2018. I was committed to not, my commitment was to not build anything. Right. And I would, my other commitment was to do nothing out of desperation and everything out of inspiration. And the result of, of that was just doing what I enjoy doing. And by doing what I enjoy doing, we were able to found Training Camp for the Soul. I founded the Strong Coach. I was like, oh, I'll just throw a course. The Training Camp for the Soul is like, all right, I'll help you uh, like kind of put some of the marketing together and I'll help you facilitate. I'll help, you know, get this thing going. It'll be fun for me. And then um, not thinking about money at all. And then, you know, in June of, of 2018, going, oh man, I see these coaches. They, could really use, you know, some help here. You know, I'm going to just throw together a course. So I built a course that turned into a program that turned into a company. And then in the fall, I, I uh, went and worked with the guys from Procabulary to, to create and lifted. And I was really just doing what I love doing and enjoying myself. I made good money that year. And uh, you know, uh, by middle of 2019, I decided to step away from Enlifted and started stepping away from training camp for the soul a bit because I had done what I was going to do there. I wasn't going to do more. And, 
yeah, it, it's, it just, it gives me chills to hear that reflection from people because it wasn't my master plan, but when it was all done, I had seen what had happened and that was, um, that was, it was divine. It was divine. It was not, it was not my thinking mind that created that. It was being in that dance with God that put me in a position to co-create those things. That was not, that was not me. That was, I had input, but it was, there was a lot of dancing with other people. There was dancing with the universe um, in order to make that happen. So uh, yeah, thanks for uh, mentioning that. Absolutely. What I hear in that is the the Taoist principle of the Wei Wu Wei, the action, you know, through the or the the action through inaction, the surrender to allow the divine expression come through you, and you know, ultimately, when we move from that space of desperation, that that space of survival, that's when the the energy of creation can come through us. That's when it can be most fully expressed when we um, yeah, just let go of the, that, you know, striving, striving, striving. It's like the being purpose. When we just sit with what can be in its potentiality, that's when we get those downloads. What in this two year period, how has plant medicine facilitated the, the shifts the processing, the allowance of this divine expression in in your own journey. You know, um, the the in the last, I'd say two and a half years, um, the the plant that has had the biggest impact on me w- would be ayahuasca, or uh, if I'm in Colombia, we call it yahe. Slightly different, but fundamentally the same, and. The um, my experience with Yahe specifically in Colombia, um, it, it, I was facing darkness before that. I was, I was uh, working through some things, and I thought that I had been, I had intellectually gotten there, but in that experience, I was all consumed by the darkness and I was shown where these wounds come from, from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, And um, gave me a lot of compassion for what is and what is within me and what is in the world. And um, it, what it showed me was that my, uh that i had been putting so much attention on the love and light and that i was basically always avoiding the darkness i was avoiding those things that i had deemed as evil um and wrong and i mean had really strong visceral reactions against and um it brought it to my face in a way that was completely there was no i was surrounded there was no escape and uh i remember a moment when on yahe that uh a switch flipped and i went from resisting it to 
going into a full out fight against it. And I, I remember ripping off my clothes and pounding the earth with my fists. So much so that the facilitator thought I was going to break my hands. And uh, I know that, that may sound like insane to some people, but uh, <laughs> it was a bit insane. I, I, I definitely lost my mind for a moment there. And uh, it was, it felt incredibly good to completely, because what, what happened when that, that, that switch flipped was the fear of it completely vanished. And the anger against it went to an all-time high. And it was, it was what felt like righteous anger. This is, this is the way in which anger is expressed in a way that is good for humanity. Not, I'm upset about, you know, somebody took my toy and now I'm angry about it. You know, angry about, angry about the darkness. Angry that the darkness exists and that um, people don't even know it. And ang angry, but also, you know, in that moment, of just, I, I basically uh, came out of that state exhausted and, uh, and uh, really, you know, it's just like, I went, I went toe to toe with the devil in that moment. And, um, and I was okay. I went all out and I was okay. And I, I, I got to have the felt sense of power that exists within me to um, be exposed to these things and to be able to look at, you know, the darkness face to face, eye to eye and not flinch. And, um, I, uh, it, it was, it ended up being an incredibly beautiful experience. Uh, you know, that was, that was, that ex specific experience I was describing was, was day two of a four day, uh, four days of ceremony. And, uh, yeah, the next day I spent the entire time harnessing that energy and becoming friendly with the amount of life force that I was going to have to draw upon in order to accomplish the things that, uh, that I intend to accomplish. And um, it was an incredibly strong masculine energy. And it, it was a, uh, it felt like a completion of a phase that I had been in that was very feminine in nature. I was, traveling the world. I was floating through, I was doing the, you know, I was only acting out of inspiration, not desperation, which is, which is fine. But it was, it created a very, like, very loose structure. I still only want to behave out of inspiration, by the way, but I want to act out of inspiration while creating structure, which sometimes requires to do things that don't feel good. So I was, I had actually confused being inspired with only doing what felt good but I needed to be there for a while. I needed to only feel good for a while so that I could, so that I could expose myself to inspiration. And so, um, yeah, this was really the culmination of a, a few years of, of being in that, allowing myself to go fully into that feminine energy and not be very productive. 
you know, it's definitely creating some things, definitely impacting lives in a positive way, but always doing it on my terms and, you know, uh, moving away from the resistance that comes from outside. And, um, and yeah, that was, that was really the start of a rebirthing of my acceptance of masculine energy as, as something that is also good and necessary if we are going to uh, make the difference in the world that we want to see. I have to, I have to embody both being feminine and masculine in myself. If I'm going to be a complete in myself and be able to lead by example, uh, to show other people, Hey, this is what's possible for a single human being. You can do it too. What's coming to me is this Wookie foot song. If you're familiar with the band Wookie foot, they had this song called loose your mind. And one of the lyrics in the song is to find your heart. You have to lose your mind. And I, when I imagine you banging your hands on the ground, angry at the, the amount of darkness, the amount of evil and shadow in the world that is ultimately a reflection of that shadow in yourself. You know, you are finding that capacity for vulnerability and bravery when, within yourself that is allowing the integration of the masculine so that you can then take that inspired action and recognize what that inspired action is so that you can take action on it. We're, we're running up on, on time. What, what advice can you give to someone who is on this path waking up to really begin to see reality, to see the truth and to begin stepping into that truth as defined by their own principles and within the context of their own, you know, identity as they define it. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the area that most people need to do the most work in and able and in order to be able to do the other work, a prerequisite is that emotional sovereignty. And, um, and what that means is being able to be with any emotion and feeling that comes up, being able to accept it all the way through and to, uh, be in a place where you don't jump to judgments about what that feeling means. So it requires an enormous amount of work to become comfortable with all these feelings that you've likely been avoiding your entire life. And so, I mean, if you're 30 years old, you may have been uh, uh, trying to get away from this for 25 years and you've, it, the, the strategies that you've created to avoid this feeling have generated your personality and who, you, who, how you show up in the world. So it's not easy work, but until you do that work, what's going to happen is you will be presented with information that is uncomfortable and you will make it mean something that it is not. You will make it um, that discomfort will cause judgment. It will cause you to filter information and not hear certain things and hear other things. It'll cause you to interpret data improperly. And so if you have the experience of when you hear certain kinds of information that you get a feeling in your body and then you immediately go into response, 
you don't have emotional sovereignty yet. The emotional sovereignty will look like you hear the information, you see the experience, you see something, you hear something, you take it in. And instead of having an emotional decision made about it, you can feel that feeling, be curious about that feeling, and then let that feeling pass. If you find yourself dwelling on the same feeling for longer than a few minutes, you haven't felt it all the way through yet. You're still judging it. You're dwelling on it. And which means that you can't think clearly and you're not going to be able to think critically. And by the way, one of the most valuable things on the planet right now is critical thinking. Uh, Every person in business, the thing that's the most valuable is being able to think critically and solve problems. And so, uh, yeah, that's step one is gain your emotional sovereignty. And it doesn't mean that life is going to be hunky-dory and you're never going to feel upset. In fact, there's a period of time where you're going to feel a lot of emotions. And, and I, I would say that, that it, it, it takes years. I, I've seen anyone, I haven't seen anyone do it faster. It's about a two or three year process to be able to really create space between that um, stimulus and response, that emotional response. And then the, the key is seeing how fast you can become curious about it versus creating a judgment about it. And so in the beginning, it could take days or weeks for, you know, whatever it is. And then you improve your ability to become curious about the experience. I was talking to somebody recently and they were angry at somebody else and they wanted to find resolution with this person in, in the midst of their anger. And I said, well, if you want the best case scenario, if you want to be able to find the, the highest level of resolution, you have to forgive them. Can you forgive them right now? He goes, no, I can't. It's like, all right, then. Then I wouldn't have any conversations with this person. And I would wait for that anger to subside. I would sit with it. I'd become curious about it. And then when you find, get, get to a place of forgiveness. So his, his job was to see how, uh, how curious he could be about that anger. And uh, so that, I mean, the worst thing you can do is really f- think that there's a goal at the end of it. <laughs> you really just need it. Cause that kills curiosity. If you, if you're trying to do it for a reason, true curiosity is just, you know, I don't care what the result of this, the, the truth of what's happening. I really just want to know and get down to the truth of things. Um, and so, you know, and this person I was advising, you know, he's been doing the work for a long time and he still found himself triggered into a state where he was ineffective. He was ineffective at communicating. He was ineffective at seeing the situation clearly. And is definitely not going to be able to negotiate the conversation appropriately. So, um, yeah, find emotional sovereignty. I hope I described it well enough that people can at least start taking some steps towards it. You did. That, that for me is, has been the goal is finding that next layer 
within myself. And that is supported through all of the, the language work that Enlifted does of you know noticing where your projections are occurring in your life that you can then reel them back in and like, all right, this, what I'm projecting onto someone else is ultimately a reflection of myself that I am being triggered by within my own emotional body. That energy in motion is coming up in me. And how can I, you know, pull that story back in to the internal from the external that I can then begin to do my own processing and realign the perception with reality. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it has been fucking rad to have you on the show today um, and to have this conversation. Where can people find you? How can people work with you? Where would you like to direct people? Yeah, thanks for having me. I, um, you know what? The, the main thing I want people to do right now is to go listen to my podcast, The Bledsoe Show. We are um, resurrecting it on, on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I, I love the conversations between you and Max Schenk. You guys have a really awesome dynamic. Can second that recommendation. Yeah. Well, the, that's different. That's, that's, uh, I've been posting that to my channel, but that's Monday morning with Mike and Max. But I'm posting, I'm, I'm getting back into the, the role of interviewing people for the Bledsoe show. And that, that comes out. We're dropping a few episodes on Easter Sunday. So I'll, I'll keep that Monday morning with Mike and Max up because that is definitely a, a rich and fun conversation. Um, he and I definitely sharpen each other intellectually. And uh, yeah, it's a real joy. So yeah, go check out the Bledsoe show. Uh, you know, you can go listen to the shows I do with Max on there as well. And uh, yeah, you can follow me on uh, Instagram, Mike underscore Bledsoe. Beautiful brother. Thank you so much for, for joining me in this conversation. And I'm sending you much love. Thanks, Nate. Love you. <laughs>